We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Hey, we're going to be continuing in the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor of long ago. In the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 2. Remember, we're reading someone else's mail here, right? This is written to specific people in a specific time and place, and they were dealing with specific things. And yet, though these words from Jesus to a church long, long, long ago, across the other side of the world, uh, are, are very specific to them, still the Spirit of God who this is spoken through, who John was able to write this down by and send it to them. The same spirit of God has preserved these words because Jesus still wants to say something to us today. And so we are entering into that story. In Revelation chapter two, we're reading the letter sent to the church in Pergamum and we pick up in verse 12. So Jesus continuing through his messenger, John, he says this, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And remember, I'm gonna, this is the only time I'm going to pause when I read this. Remember that word angel just means messenger, right? We don't know exactly which messenger he's writing to, but to demystify that, that's what that word means. Write to the messenger of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. Father, we ask that as we enter into a story that we were not a part of when this letter was originally written, and yet you are calling us to be a part of today, God, we ask that your spirit would guide us, that we would somehow mysteriously, by your power, be able to set aside our our lenses and our own experiential understandings and enter into what you are desiring to reveal to us. That we would see you more clearly, that we would be filled by your spirit, that we would bring glory and honor to your name. And so in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. It's been a weird week. I almost lost my arm on Wednesday night, like legitimately. You guys ever seen that movie, 127 Hours? I think there was a book first. It's actually from a true story of a guy who is spelunking through caves and he ends up getting his arm caught in between two boulders 
And he's there for over five days, stuck there. And if you know the story, he has to eventually cut his own arm off in order to get out. Hasn't had much food or water for those five days. And now his arm has been cut off by his own hand. And he has to travel out of the cave and go and and find help. I wasn't spelunking through caves. I'm not as adventurous as that. I was in my coffee shop. Uh, As many of you know, I roast coffee for Cultivate. And we have a brand new coffee roaster that we paid a lot of money for. And we finally got set up. It was supposed to arrive last October. Everything with shipping has been crazy. And so it, it took a long time. We finally got it. Then we didn't have all the right parts to ventilate it and to make all the connections for the propane. We finally got that set up. And then I did my first roast on it. And then we heard a pop. And I started smelling something burning the motor went out. It was a faulty motor on this brand new roaster. So I called the manufacturer. We got that squared away, had an electrician come, put in a new motor Wednesday morning. So I get there Wednesday night to go and roast some coffee. And the motor doesn't work. It's, it's turning the wrong way, right? So it's supposed to be turning clockwise. It's going counterclockwise. The reason that matters is when you open up the tray to get the coffee pouring out into this cooling tray, it won't come out. It's just spinning around in there. So I got to undo all the work the electrician did and rewire this thing so that it's going the correct direction. And all of this was not how I almost lost my arm. Now I could finally roast some coffee. And I did like six glorious, beautiful, delicious smelling batches of coffee that night. And I was on my last one. I had my AirPods in and I was talking to my wife, letting her know that I would be home soon last batch I just dumped out of the roasting chamber into that cooling tray. And so it's this giant circle where the coffee goes in and there's a fan that sucks all the hot air out from underneath. And these big metal stirring arms rotate around to stir the beans. It's pretty common for roasters. And I'm going to say this so I don't sound like as much of an idiot. This is common for roasters. So when you see a bean in there you don't like, maybe it's just kind of like it's too black or it's just a funky looking bean, you just reach in, you grab it, and you toss it out, right? Well, ours has a lid over the cooling tray. And I just lifted up the front part of it. Talking to my wife, I reached in to grab a bean to toss it out. And my arm starts getting sucked in to the tray. The stirring arm grabbed hold of my watch. I'm not wearing it anymore for that reason grabbed hold of my watch and kept going, sucked me into the tray. So there's a a covering here on top of me and I'm getting pulled in. Bethany said she had never heard me make a noise like this ever. We've been married almost 18 years. I don't know what the noise was. I'm not gonna replicate it even if I did. Uh, She had, she's like so confused what was going on. So I get sucked in. There's this round tray that my fist is against one side and my elbow against the other and the metal arm digging into the middle of my arm here, the whole time, trying to snap it in half. I thought, I'm losing my arm. This is it. Thank God I was able to somehow reach around to the other side of the machine, and I couldn't see it, but find the switch to turn off the stirs. And once I did that, I was still stuck. So I had to find a way to get in there and undo my watch, pull the arm off, and then pull my arm out. 
the stirring arm, not pull my arm off, <laughs> the, the metal arm that was doing all the damage to me. I had an indention. It's not as bad anymore. I had this indention in my arm. It looked like a deep cut, uh, but it was, actually it didn't break skin at all. It just drove into my arm there. My whole hand was numb. It felt like my shoulder had been dislocated when it was pulling me in, and I was convinced my arm was broken. Fortunately, it wasn't. But to make myself feel a little better again about the stupid thing I did, I Googled arm getting stuck in coffee roaster. <laughs> and it is common, dangerously common. And the first article I read was this lady who was roasting coffee who literally had her arm pulled off of her. So by God's grace, I still have two arms here today, right? Yeah, <laughs> thank God. I was literally, as I'm sitting there, I was thinking about that movie, 127 Hours, and him having to cut his own arm off. I bring up this story because as we read this letter to Pergamum, there's, there's a trap that they have fallen into. That's actually the word Jesus used about this, this lifestyle of the Nicolaitans. The, the trap that Balaam and Balak, who are two people we'll talk about in a second, a trap they set for the Israelites. This trap, it doesn't seem dangerous at first. Just reach in and grab that coffee bean, right? Uh, and then it sucks you in. And you find yourself stuck all of a sudden. I'll take questions later, Connor. Because of that grin on your face, I, I'm not quite sure I want to let you ask it right now. <laughs> it sucks you in and you, you find yourself stuck in this trap. And Jesus talks about, remember, he, he starts off every letter introducing himself a little bit differently, contextually to the people that he's writing to. And in this one, he says, I'm the dude with the sharp sword. Right, like that's, that's pretty intense. And what Jesus is talking about is coming in and cutting off what doesn't belong. I'm the one with the sharp sword. And then he goes, and I know where you live. If you stop right there, you just go, oh man, this is a scary letter, right? But let's continue because he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm the one with the sharp sword. I know where you live. And then he goes on to say, verse 13, where Satan's throne is. And yet you are being faithful. It starts off sounding kind of scary, but actually what Jesus is doing is the same thing he was doing in the last letter we read to Smyrna. He's comforting them. Remember, Smyrna was suffering a lot of oppression and persecution. And Jesus's words are, I know. I know. I know what you're going through. And the same Jesus and the same comforting words are being said now to Pergamum, to the ones who got caught in a trap to the ones who find themselves stuck in a way of life that they should not be in. Jesus says, listen, he starts with, I know. I know where you are. I know how hard it is to follow me there. He calls this place, this city that they're in, Pergamum, the city where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine that being said of, of the place you live in? Anybody from Vegas? Okay, good. Because maybe you might be able to relate a little bit to that. What do we call Vegas? The city of sin, right? What a title to live in a place like that. But they have a little trap there, don't they? A little invitation. Hey, what happens here stays here. 
So just come, come enjoy it, and then you can go home and leave it, right? That's fine. No one's going to know. And that's kind of what's happening in Pergamum. Hey, you, you, can, you can have this way of following Jesus, and you can say these things, that's fine, but look at this other stuff. This is kind of enticing too, right? And Jesus calls it, that's the city where Satan's throne is. Now, it's also very possible that he's speaking directly to these idolatrous structures that they had built in that city. In this city, uh, much like Ephesus and Smyrna, which we read those letters the last two weeks, they have this very cult-like following of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And so there, in the middle of the city, there was this giant statue representing Caesar that people would worship. Uh, Domitian at the time, and he would require everyone to say that he is Lord, that he is like God, and to worship him. And this, this letter is saying, that's the throne of Satan. It wasn't an actual depiction of Satan, right? Like, like I don't know how cartoons have depicted him with the horns and the pitchfork. It was a human ruler who was trying to take the place of God and was oppressing and abusing other humans. Jesus says, that's where Satan's throne is. We just stop and think about that for a second. Like we could gloss over that part and just go, man, it must've been hard to live in Pergamum. Those Romans, they were a mess, right? What Jesus is saying is Satan's throne is when a human tries to take power and control over others and take the position that God should have only. That's why Jesus could say to Peter, when Peter's trying to tell him, hey, you don't have to do what your father sent you to do. Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Jesus came to relinquish his power for the sake of others, to lay down his rights so that others could find freedom, not oppression, could find life, not death, not suffering. So Jesus has some pretty bold words to say about when humans wield and hold power over other humans in order to gain something for themselves. And what the emperor was doing and what what most of the Roman guards and officials were doing is they were at the expense of other human beings living very comfortably living fat off of taxes and enjoying all the pleasures of the world. And so that's what Jesus confronts next. He goes, listen, here's the trap. Many of you are seeing the way that that lifestyle looks and it looks good. And you want to just reach in and grab it for yourselves. And a lot of the people in that area people within the church even, for doing just that. So he goes, I, I know that there are some of you who are following in the teachings and the ways of Balaam and Balak. And you got to stop and ask, who are those people? Or what is a Balaam and a Balak, right? What is that? Does anybody remember this story? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of a talking donkey? It's not Shrek. This is the Bible. Anyone remember that? All right. It's found in Numbers 22. Okay. 
in Numbers chapter 22. There's this prophet named Balaam. He's actually not an Israelite. We don't know uh, much about him. And so I don't know if he was actually a prophet who would hear from the true God or if he was speaking prophetically from these other spiritual forces and beings and saying what they wanted to say. But either way, he was called a prophet. And there's this king of the Moabites named Balak. And they were about to go to war with the Israelites. So King Balak goes, hey, uh, I know that they are a powerful army, the Israelites are. I know that they could come in and just crush us. So I need like some spiritual help here. I need something bigger than my army. So hire Balaam the prophet, have him come in and we'll hire him, we'll pay him to speak a curse over the Israelites. And so Balaam starts coming at the request of this king. And this is where the story of the donkey comes in is as he's trying to ride through a certain area, the donkey just stops and won't let him continue. And so, you know, talk about using your power over another one to oppress it. He starts just beating the donkey. Why aren't you moving and beating it? And then the donkey responds to him. And I love that there's not really like a, there's not this moment of like, whoa, 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 how are you talking to me, right? Like the Bible just leaves that part out. It probably happened, I don't know, but they just have a conversation. And this donkey, she goes, hey, how long have I been your mule? How long have I been your, your ride? How long have I carried you around on my back? And have I ever done this to you before? No, I'm stopping you because the Lord is stopping us. And then Balaam's eyes are open. He's able to see that there's like this messenger of the Lord standing there blocking him with a sword. You're not going that way. So then he has this interaction with God where God finally says, okay, you can go, but you will only be allowed to speak what I tell you to speak. King Balak's gonna pay you to speak a curse over Israel you're only gonna be able to speak what I command you to speak. And so three times and then a fourth time, he goes to speak a curse over Israel because he's getting paid for it and blessing comes out of his mouth. It's kind of like that old movie, Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. You know, when like he tries to tell a lie, but he can only speak the truth. It's like that. He goes to speak a curse over Israel and then just pours out a blessing over them instead. And King Balak is getting furious He's going, I paid you for a job. You're not getting paid now. Just go home. Well, what we find later, this happens all the way uh, through Numbers 22 through 26, I believe. And then he's brought up again in Numbers 31. What we find in that story is Balaam, the prophet, because he can't speak a curse and get paid, he goes, here's what I can do. And he finds a little loophole for him and King Balak. And he goes, if we can't speak a curse on Israel to bring them down, Here's how you get them to take themselves out. Go entice them with really good food, food that's been sacrificed to your gods that they're not supposed to eat and entice them with your women. Women who look really good, they're not supposed to have relationship with. You see what's happening here, right? It's, it's the same story all the way back at the beginning in the garden when there's first two humans were enticed with something to eat because it looked good and it seemed like it would please their bodies. And it ended up being a trap that led to death. So that's what they do. They entice the Israelites and the men, they go do things with women they should not do. And they take food they should not take. 
because it'll make them feel good in the moment. And Jesus is saying, hey, you have some people who are following in those same footsteps today, you guys, in Pergamum. And I want to say, I, I think the Spirit has preserved this word as a letter to us because that's true of us today too, isn't it? We have some, myself included, who follow in the teachings of Balaam and Balak. That sometimes something just looks good and you want to satisfy yourself in the moment. I don't think I'm the only one. And it's a snare, it's a trap. And you can sometimes find yourself stuck in it. And Jesus goes, I'm coming with a sword. I'm coming with a double-edged sword to do some cutting. So he brings up Balaam, Balak, and then he, he equates them to the Nicolaitans. Again, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, right? But it seems like they are people who are contemporary to them. So for Pergamum at the time, the church there, this would have been modern for them. Oh, okay, Balak and Balaam was a long time ago. We, maybe, maybe you don't relate to that. The Nicolaitans are people among you right now. And he goes, you're, you're practicing the same thing. They were guilty of the same sins. We heard of the Nicolaitans in the first letter to Ephesus. One of the things they finally got right was that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, like Jesus hated. Pergamum, though, you know, they're giving in to those practices. They're right there with them. So Jesus says, fight against that because I'm coming soon. He goes, I'm coming soon. If you don't repent and turn away from that, here's the reality. I'm coming soon with my double-edged sword from my mouth. That's a weird picture, right? You picture Jesus coming with like a sword in his mouth and just slashing around. Like, how does that even work? I don't think he's got this super strong like pit bull jaw where he can hold onto a sword really tight and just like start slashing people. What comes out of the mouth? Words. Anytime we hear the double-edged sword in scripture, it's referring to the word of God. Who is the word of God? Who speaks the word of God? Jesus himself is coming to do some cutting with his words. I think it's super helpful that we're taking a pause from Acts to go into this right now because we just heard in Acts when Peter starts speaking the good news of Jesus, it says the crowds were what? They were pierced to the heart. This double-edged sword on one side, it does some cutting and removing of those who were not following Jesus. But on the other side, think of it more of like a scalpel, right? Another analogy for that is like when I was doing sports in high school, you had to make the cut for the team, right? So you would try out and the coaches would cut some people from the team and go, you are not a part of this team. Uh, and then what would happen is those who stayed, guess what they did? They started really working hard to cut out some, some things that weren't disciplined, some things that uh, were just bad practices, Right? That's a bad analogy because that's performance-based, uh, but it kind of gives us a picture. Jesus is doing this cutting where it's, if you are not with me and following me, you are cut and removed on one end of the sword. On the other end of the sword, those of you who are with me, allow me to still do some cutting. But this is like a physician with a scalpel doing cutting. It's not to destroy you and tear you down, 
but it's to bring healing and restoration. It's to cut out the thing like we're, we're doing through Lent, removing an unhealthy practice that pulls you away from Jesus and replacing it with a healthy one that draws you toward him. Jesus' invitation is, allow me to do some cutting. I know that sounds really weird, right? But his invitation is, allow me to cut out the things in your life that are actually harming you. They're a trap and they've got you stuck. Let me cut those things out of your life so you can actually start flourishing. If this is a more helpful, easier to stomach word, the Bible calls this pruning. Cutting away the unhealthy things so that you can actually grow more healthy. It's Jesus's invitation to us. What is it he he wants to cut out of your life right now? The thing that, has been a trap for you that maybe you feel stuck in. Jesus doesn't say, hey, those of you who are able to get out of that on your own, I got a reward for you. No, no, no. His invitation is those of you who would trust me to do the removing in your life, you're gonna continue to need to be pruned throughout your life until Jesus returns fully one day. So not if you're able to do this on your own, if you're able to stop doing these things on your own, start doing the right things on your own, but if you are willing to submit yourself to him and say, Jesus, keep working on me, that is where you find the reward. And he's got a reward that maybe doesn't really connect with us, right? We, we, we hear this reward to Pergamum. He says this, verse 17, let anyone who hears who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. So that might be a weird phrase to you. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, that is a weird image. We don't understand that. Why are you going to give me a white rock, Jesus? <laughs> and this is where we can get ourselves into big trouble in Revelation when we go, what is the symbolism here and what does this mean? Here's the thing, that's the only time that image pops up in scripture. A lot of the images that we twist and get wrong from Revelation are actually rooted in Old Testament and you can actually discover what they mean by knowing the full story well. But this white stone, I couldn't find it anywhere else in scripture. And when that happens, do we make up a meaning for its image? That would be foolish, right? No, no, when that happens, we gotta go, okay, possibly this was contextual to the people the letter was written to. So let's do a little digging there. And when you start looking into Pergamum, ancient Pergamum at this time, it was known for having white stones in its landscape. It's not a coincidence. And in fact, one of their practices, think about like when someone donates maybe a park bench or something at a building, what do they do? They put a little plaque there, right? And they inscribe someone's name on it. In Pergamum, they had this practice that these monuments that they were erecting, these idolatrous statues to worship Caesar or to worship their false gods, they would be built with these white stones and certain people of high position, high power, high status would donate to have that built and they would actually inscribe their name 
on the stones. Suddenly, this is starting to become a little more clear, right? We got, we got to do that work. We got to, if it's not found in scripture, maybe it's contextual to the people of the day. And let's do that work. That's part of how we got to read our Bibles, right? Because we're entering into another story. This is, we're reading someone else's mail. And so these people would have their name inscribed on a white stone to build this monument to a false God. And Jesus is saying, if you do not give in to that, if you remain faithful to me, if you allow me to, to make these incisions and to cut out the things in your life that are not healthy, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. No one else needs to even know about it. Everybody else in your city wants everyone to see their stone with their name on it on that monument because they want to get the respect and the status and the power. Listen, Jesus says, I will know it and that's enough. I'll know it and you'll know it. Another practice they would have, many people think in Pergamon with these stones, is when there is an invitation to something uh, really elegant like a a party that only people of really high privilege get to go to as they would hand out stones. And if you received a white stone, you were in, you got to come. And if you received a black stone, you were out. And so it's quite possible here too that Jesus is saying, if you allow me to do this work in your life, to trust that I am the true Lord, not Caesar, I welcome you in and I give you a new name. This is a new identity. This is, this is the thing Jesus has been trying to do all along, you guys, is to reclaim our identity of who we are as image bearers of God, his father, as brothers and sisters with him, Jesus, co-heirs with the glory that he has in the throne of the kingdom of God, that we're welcomed into that with a new identity. And he says, I'll give you hidden manna. I don't know uh, much about why this word hidden is there, but I do know this. Manna was this way that God provided for his people in the wilderness, right? Again, these images are rooted in Old Testament. And so in the wilderness, the Israelites, years and years before that letter was written, they were wandering through the wilderness and they needed food and God would literally rain bread from the sky to provide for them. But what did he do? He, He gave them just enough for each day. He said, only collect enough for each day because when you try to collect more, the next day, it's going to be rotten. So they would only collect enough for the day. They had to trust that God would provide again the next day. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. We sang that song earlier. To trust that God will continue to provide again this day and the next day and the day after that. It was hidden in a sense because they didn't know if it was coming again. They didn't know where it was coming from, but they trusted that God would provide for it. And not coincidentally, Jesus then comes and he tells people that he is the bread of life. And in a sense, he's hidden from us right now, isn't he? Because he's gone to be with the father and to prepare a place for us. And we have to trust that the spirit is present with us here and now, that God still provides for us here and now and trust that we will be provided for ultimately and fully one day when Jesus returns, the bread of life and fully nourishes us. The, The trap of trying to go to other things to satisfy you, 
That will keep us from it. But Jesus says, he is the bread of life. He nourishes, he satisfies, he sustains, he fills. So he says, come and feast with me. I wanna share one more uh, scripture in Philippians 3. We have it on the screen here. We'll close with this. Paul's writing a letter before John wrote this one to Pergamum. Paul was writing to another church in Philippi and he's writing to the Philippians and he's encouraging them to stay strong by holding to the truth that they believed, to remember the truth, the good news of who Jesus is and what he had done for them and to trust that he's enough. That's, that's the main point of his letter here. And he says this, Philippians 3, starting in verse 16. He says, in any case, we should live up to whatever the truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the Christ, of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Listen to this. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Leave that up there for a second. The same trap for Pergamum, for the Israelites in the days of King Balak, and for Philippi. Their God is their stomach. They're just filling themselves with, a, with whatever looks good in the moment. They glory in their shame. Look at this white stone with my name. Look how great I am. And that brings, that's their shame. He says they are focused on earthly things. We have a different hope. We have something better that can truly satisfy us. And Paul goes on to say this, our citizenship is in heaven. Now he doesn't mean that that's floating up in the clouds, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's, what he's talking about is what Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I am coming back. He is reuniting the kingdom of God, heaven and earth reuniting. That's where our home is. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And he gives this call. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And that's our call for us today, Missio. I think that's what the Spirit wants to say to us. We are given a new identity and we are satisfied fully in Jesus alone if we hold firm to him.